Okay, it's, it's good to see everybody back, and uh, we're going to go ahead and get started for time's sake and jump right in. Uh, I, I do want to say how much I appreciate everybody's cooperation and attention and uh, all of the questions that have been asked, and again, we're going to allow for more of an extended question period after the last session. Uh, so if you, again, if you have questions that are relating to the first two, there are some index cards on the back table. Uh, if you'll go and grab one of those and then just bring it up during the next break. Uh, if we have a next break. I, d I don't know how long the time of this will be, so that's, that's part of the thing. We'll, we'll see how long we go. Have to turn it on. Okay. There we go. Okay. So what we want to start with this afternoon is the idea of historical context. And we, we talked earlier about now how not all Scripture applies to all men. And one of the things that I think is very important for Bible understanding, and I'm sure everybody has seen something very similar to this, is understanding the authority that existed during different time periods. And so, for instance, what we often refer to as the patriarchal age, uh, which if you look on page 7, I've got a timeline of the Old Testament books. Um, it's not going to be up on the PowerPoint, so uh, if, you, if you go to page 7... You'll see a long list with bullet points and all of the Old Testament books connected with different time periods. And, and those are just for reference later. I, I find that very helpful if I'm going to go look at a book to go back and refer to this and say, okay, what was going on in the nation of Israel at this time? And that's very helpful to me. Uh, and I think it'll be helpful to you as well. Now, if we're going from Genesis chapter 1 to Exodus 20, we're in the patriarchal age that's 2,500 years, which is the longest time period uh, of the earth's existence. And I find that very interesting because if you look at how much uh, room that takes up in Scripture, it's about that much. So the longest period of time has the, the most limited amount of information. And I, don't, I don't think there's a problem with that. Obviously, God has, there's a lot about that time period God did not reveal to us. What we do know is there's a great transition during that period of time with the flood and then later with the calling of Abraham and the promises that God gave to Abraham and that leading to this nation of Israel going out of Egypt, exiting out of Egypt and really the law of Moses and the time of the Mosaical age doesn't necessarily start with the Exodus. It happens at Mount Sinai when God gives the Ten Commandments and then delivers the, what we call the written book of the law, what the Bible calls the written book of the law, which is an explanation of the original ten. And so God gives Ten Commandments to Moses, and then he expounds on those in the written book of the law, explaining the Ten Commandments throughout the book of the law with various laws that are both ceremonial and moral and also ethical laws, and, and sometimes laws referring uh, to temple worship and the sacrifice and all those things. Now, the question comes up, does any of that apply to us today? And I think we have to be careful about the way we use the word apply, uh, because if we're saying do they have any relevance for us, then 100%, absolutely. All those things that happened during the patriarchal and the mosaical age have great relevance for you and I. But I think the bigger question, the most important question to ask is, does the law of Moses have an authority for us today? And so I don't want to, I know most of us understand this, but again, I don't want to assume that everybody knows what everybody knows. So, so we want to go through just briefly and talk about that as it relates to the uh, Old and New Testament. So... <clears throat> First off, this, was, this is not a new issue. 
Uh, there were people that questioned whether or not the old law was an authority in the first days of the church. And so as the church is be- developing and we have Jews and Gentiles who are now in the, the body, in one body, we have the Jews who are still holding on to their old traditions and ways, trying to impress those and, and um, mandate those in the lives of the Gentiles. And so that caused a lot of division, it caused a lot of problems, it caused the Gentiles to question whether or not they were actually saved. And so this was what was being taught, and this particular instance is at Antioch. And if you go back and read this, you're going to see this council at Jerusalem where they all get together and they talk about this and they say, well, what are we going to tell them? And, and they make a, a, a judgment decision based upon the Spirit of God that's been given to them, and they go back and they tell them, you don't have to keep the law of Moses. Uh, we, we're going to tell you you need to stay from fornication, stay away from fornication, from things strangled, from blood, uh, and keep yourself from idols. That, that was the things that they came back and said. Now, obviously, there was a lot more teaching given to the Gentiles in the letters that Paul wrote later. But right now, there's, what's emphatic about this is that they come back and they say, you don't have to do what these people have told you. You don't have to be circumcised, and you don't have to keep the law of Moses. Now, why is this so important? Because if you're going to do New Testament study, you have to understand that Romans, Galatians, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Corinthians 3, and the entire book of Hebrews are devoted to this very issue. All of those letters. And so if you understand that, when you read these letters, you start learning things. Like, what was the perversion of the gospel that he talked about in Galatians 1 when he said, you know, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him who called you into this grace to another gospel and talk to them about perverting the gospel. Well, what were they doing? Well, read the letter and you'll find out. It was this right here. This is how they were perverting the gospel. By saying there's another way to be saved. And it's through Moses and it's through circumcision. It's through keeping the law. That was how they perverted the gospel. So very helpful to to get the background for many of Paul's letters and understanding why he wrote the things that he did and why a lot of times his audience was primarily Gentiles, because they were the ones that were being greatly affected. Because what we see is that the Jews, for the Jews to keep a lot of their customs after they became Christians was not a problem. And he, he mentions that several times. It's not a problem for them to keep those customs. What the problem is, is when they came in and said, no, you have to keep our customs too, or you can't be saved. That's a problem. And that's why he's writing about you can't be saved by works. And, and don't think for, for any moment that your salvation is attached to all these works that these men are telling you are important for your salvation. And essentially, they're not important. So that's, obviously, that's a very short explanation of, uh, of, of a very long discussion that is layered all throughout the New Testament. But that is the problem that's being addressed. So some of the things that are mentioned, this was one of the verses that I mentioned earlier, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So does anybody remember in the Gospels when Jesus nailed the old law to the cross? Obviously that's not literal, right? Right, and so that... It tells you sometimes there's phrases used to explain something that happened in a figurative way. And we're going to jump into that here in a moment. But just understand that when he says this, think about nailing it to the cross. What does that mean? It means he put an end to it. He put an end to those ordinances. He blotted them out. He did away with them. And those things were actually not for our salvation. They weren't for us. They were against us. And who's his audience? 
He's writing to Christian Gentiles primarily. Well, how is the law against them? Well, you see that in other places. So in Ephesians 2, chapter 14 and 16, he expounds on this idea when he says, For he, that's Jesus, is our peace, who hath made both, that's both Jew and Gentile, one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make it himself of twain one new man, so making peace. So I want to stop for a moment again. We're going to do some exercise in hermeneutics here, and let's break down these verses and see what they're saying. Jesus is our peace, who hath made both one, and broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So think of this as here's Jew and here's Gentile, and between them is this dividing wall, right? And what is it that's causing them not to have peace? The dividing wall. And what was the dividing wall? We don't have to wonder about that. He explains it. Having abolished, listen, in his flesh the enmity, nailed it to his cross, right? Abolished in his flesh the enmity. Now what's the word enmity mean? An adversary, a opposing force. What was that? The law of commandments contained in ordinances. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Pretty simple. There was something that was a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. You know what people say? Well, that's not what that means. <laughs> that's not what that means. That, that has to do with traditions that those corrupt Pharisees came up with. And, you know, if, if you hear stuff like that, you go, oh, well, maybe it is. Well, you're, you're saying Pharisaical tradition was dividing Jew and Gentile? Or how about this? You go back to Colossians chapter 2 and you read through there a little bit and you get to verse 17 and he says, which were a shadow of things to come, but the image or the substance is Christ. So you're saying Pharisaical traditions is a shadow of Jesus? No, we know that's not right. But see, people will make these arguments against this idea. And you know why? Because it's not popular. It's not popular. And, there's, and people are using a lot of verses from the old law of Moses as a means of authority, and they just don't want to let it go. And so they're resistant to this idea. They're resistant to some of the patterns that we see in the Old Testament, even with David and the Psalms and, 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 and the usage of musical instruments. That's another argument that people make. Well, David used instruments, why can't I? Well, the answer is this. David lived under a different law than we do with a different authority. We live under a different time. We don't follow all the old, old, old law examples. Nobody does that. Even people who say they did. You know, when, when Jay and I were studying back in Clarendon, uh, Jay just asked this, this lady that we were studying with to read about some, some things that were relating to women and after they had, a chil had children and how long they had to stay at home and, and be apart from society and how they had to travel to Jerusalem and go and offer a sacrifice. And he said, did you do that? And she said, well, no. He said, are you going to tell your daughters to do that? And she said, well, I guess I have to. You know, she'd never read it. And there were lots of those laws that we read while we were studying with her that she's never aware of. And I think that's probably true of most people, is that, that it sounds good on the surface, but when you actually dig into Moses' law, you go, well, I don't do that. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I mean, that's how a lot of people react. Well, I'm not going to do that. You know, most of us would be in violation of the law of Moses right now. I would, because I'm wearing mixed material. That was a law. You couldn't wear mixed material. There's a lot of laws that people were very unaware of. They were an authority for the Jew, but they're not an authority for us. And it's because of this very thing. Because God removed that out of the way for his purposes. He removed that wall to bring unity. 
Because without removing the law, there could not be one body. There could not be Jew and Gentile. It was a necessity to accomplish God's purpose of uniting all nations, of fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham that of all nations would be blessed through Abraham and the whole thing hinged upon whether or not he did or didn't remove the law of Moses. And you understand that, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It makes perfect sense. And that's what Paul is laying out through his logic here. And so he says in verse 16, that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. There's that language again. He slain the enmity thereby. And he's talking about the law. He didn't kill the law literally. It's, it's a language that is used as an analogy to say the law no longer has life or power. It, it is not an authority. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. So this is a very important passage when understanding that dividing line. And again, I understand a lot of people understand this, but I want to go through it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, he says, For this reason, he, that's Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What I, what I take that verse in verse 15 to mean is this. Jesus is the mediator through his death. Okay, that by means of death. In other words, his death was the means by which he is the mediator of the new covenant. And that his purpose was to pay for or redeem the transgressions that were under the first covenant. So what's that tell us? It means even the sins of the Old Testament were paid for at the cross. No, nobody's sins have ever been paid for apart from Jesus. That's a very important concept we need to understand. And if they were paid for before Jesus, then why did Jesus die? If there was another means that could have accomplished that, why did Jesus die? I think that's a fair question. And the answer is, he had to die. For not just the sins of the future, but the sins of the past. And so that's what verse 1 is talking about. So that we could have what? The promise of eternal inheritance. Now here's what he says in verse 16 and 17. For where there is a testament, there must of also necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, since it has no power at all, while the testator lives. And the most simple way to explain this is think about how a will works. And if you are the testator of that will, in other words, the will and testament of Jackson Lindgren would be attached to what? His death. And, and I know that sounds somewhat morbid and eerie to think about, but the truth is if you designate certain people as benefactors in your will, they have no right to anything that is attached to their name until your death is proven to have happened. Well, that's what he's saying is the new covenant that Jesus is the mediator of did not come into effect until the testator Jesus died. And so what that essentially means is that everything before the death of Jesus from the time of Sinai until the death of Jesus is the Old Testament. It is the old law. It is under the authority of the old law. And everything after Jesus' death is now under the authority of Jesus as the testator under the New Testament. Now, the reason why this is so important is because, again, if we're looking at Bible hermeneutics, especially things that retain, to, retain pertain, I'll get that word out in a minute, pertain to doctrine and salvation, this is a necessity. And here's why. Sometimes people will say, well, if Jesus said all the things that he said in the gospel before his death, that must mean that those are Old Testament concepts. Hmm. Question. When were those things written? Some 30, 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection? So you're telling me 
<coughs> that Jesus died, and when he died, he nailed the old law to the cross, and then he sent the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, to the apostles to write all these teachings pertaining to a law that was now dead and irrelevant. That makes no sense. You know what does make sense? That you look at the teachings that Jesus taught and you go, wait, these things are about the kingdom of God. Well, when was the kingdom of God established? After his death. And so don't get tricked or fooled by people's logic because all those things were given to people who lived under the New Testament. Now, does that mean that there was never anything Jesus said or did that was pertaining to the old law? Well, of course not. And we read those in a historical context. There were things he followed that were according to law. Why? Because he lived under the old law. There were things he taught to people regarding the old law that they were living under. But I'll tell you where this really gets important is questions about salvation when it refers to something like the thief on the cross. Because a lot of times people say, well, that's how I'm going to be saved, like the thief on the cross. All he did was ask and Jesus forgave him. Well, you got a problem with that. Because the death of the testator has not occurred. So that means the thief on the cross is over here. And people say, well, he wasn't baptized, so I don't have to be baptized. Well, there's something else we need to be aware of, and that's this. Jesus didn't give the Great Commission until after he was resurrected. Why would people be commanded to follow the Great Commission when the Great Commission was never given? See, that makes no sense. What does make sense is this man lived and died when Jesus was on the earth before his death and Jesus had power on earth to forgive sins and we don't know whether the man was baptized with the baptism of John or not. And what you don't know about the thief doesn't prove what you do know. And there's just a lot of things that people are going to refer to and if you understand historical context, those things are easily dealt with. They're easily dealt with, but they have to be kept in their proper place. So... Romans 15, 4, whatever things were written before time were written for what? Our learning. Who's our? People in the kingdom. I'll tell you, that's humbling. Everything we read from Genesis all the way to Malachi was written for what? For us. You don't believe that? Why write shadows that no one will understand until Jesus dies for people who will never understand them? We do understand them, though. Why? Because we see the image. We've seen the image of Christ. We've seen God's salvation. We look back. We learn from those things. They were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And just like I was talking about earlier, I read those things, and they strengthen my faith. Because I look and I say, God has been layering truths about His grace and salvation since the beginning of time. And it's all through there. Okay, so we asked about who is the audience earlier. So we're shifting gears now. We're not in historical context now. But who is the audience? And remember, again, sometimes you just read the letter and you get clues. And so like this is a clue. We just read about the middle wall of partition. Uh, there's statements that he makes about at one time you're without God and without hope. And, and, and so who's he talking to? Well, he reveals that in his letter. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles. Who's he talking to? Gentiles. Well, you read all the statements in chapter 2 and you don't understand that, you're not going to understand the letter. But then once you understand this, you can go back to chapter 1 and you go, oh, that's why he's talking about adoption. That's why he's talking about adoption and why he's talking about, oh, to us who first received the gospel. He's talking about, he's talking about the Jew. And now all of it makes sense when you understand his audience is Gentile. Now, 
There's also uh, emphatic differences in some of the Gospels. And again, this helps us understand the Gospel based on the audience. And so I want to share some of those with you. Now, if you look through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what do you see? A lot of teaching about the kingdom, right? A lot of teaching about the kingdom. So 56 times it's mentioned in Matthew 21 and Mark, not as much, but still pretty prevalent, and Luke 45 times. You know how many times the kingdom's mentioned in the book of John, the gospel of John? Five times, and only in three verses. You know what those verses are? John 3, 5, John 3, 3. You can't see the kingdom of God, can't enter the kingdom of God. That's twice out of the five. The other three are in Jesus' conversation with Pilate when he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered from the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. That's the only time that it's mentioned. And you might go, well, why? I mean, that's pretty telling, isn't it? Did you know there's zero parables about the kingdom in John? That's pretty odd, isn't it? And so some people said, well, Maybe John's gospel is not authentic. Well, I don't think that's a reasonable conclusion. I think there needs to be a little bit more investigation of that. Notice also emphatic differences between the, three, the other three gospels in John's gospel. Whereas the kingdom is a big emphasis, but rather in the other gospels, eternal life is not. Seven times in the book of Matthew, three and three in Mark and Luke. That's not very much, but you look at John's 40 times. Why is that? I think it's worth asking that question. Let me show you one more. The Jews, the phrase the Jews is mentioned five times in Matthew. And for those five times, it's in the phrase king of the Jews. So the actual phrase the Jews by itself is just once. In the book of Mark, it's just once. In the book of Luke, it's twice where the Jews is used. Otherwise, it's just in this around the crucifixion of Jesus. So you say, well, what's your point? If you look at the book of John, it's used 66 times, the Jews. Now here's my point. If you pay attention to that, you understand something. John's not writing to Jews. His gospel is written toward a Gentile audience. Well, how do you know that? Well, number one, who was looking for the kingdom? The Jews. And John doesn't mention the kingdom. Why? Because they don't know the prophecies. Go look through John. There's, there's only a few prophecies mentioned in John. But what you do see is eternal life mentioned 66 times. The focus of his gospel is not what Jesus did, but who Jesus is. Because of the Gnosticism, the Gnostic teaching that was going on in the day, that was questioning the deity of Jesus, questioning the flesh of Jesus, and questioning the resurrection and eternal life. And that's why his letter is focused that way. And why does John use the phrase the Jew 66 times? He says the Jews' Passover, a feast of the Jews, over and over and over. Why? Because they didn't know what those things were. You don't have to say to the Jews, the Passover, which was a feast of the Jews. They know what that is. But the Gentiles do not. And so when you read the letter, you understand those things. And you understand why John's emphasis was different. And so a lot of people just throw the baby out with the bathwater and they go, oh, it's different, so it must not be inspired. Well, ask the right question. Why is it different? Why is it different? And if you dig, you'll find the answers. So, trick question. Is everything in the Bible inspired by God? Some of you are squirming right now, aren't you? Who said it? Not God. Okay, so trick, I said it's a trick question because of this. Not everything in the Scriptures is inspired by God. 
However, everything that's recorded was inspired by God. In other words, not everything is a men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So we've got to be careful about that, about assuming that everything that's said is a teaching of doctrine that was handed down by God. This obviously was not, right? Pretty easy to tell this is not according to God's will. This is against God's will. But there's other places where it might not be so obvious. So Job chapter 4, verse 7, remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God, they perish, and by the breath of his anger, they are consumed. Now, what's he saying here? You reap what you sow. Is that taught anywhere else? Absolutely. So that part's true. But let's look at the other things he says here, and then let's talk about who said it. You ever seen somebody perish and being innocent? I have. I have. And you have too, haven't you? You ever seen somebody suffer and they didn't deserve it? Yeah. I mean, that's what this book's about. About a man who suffered and didn't deserve it. Well, if it's in the Bible, then what, what's going on? Well, again, here's the important question. Who said this? It was Eliphaz, which was Job's friend. And you know what God says at the end of the book? So it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job. So I'll tell you, when you read that statement, you go back and go, Oh, I need to start looking at everything these men said with a little doubt and skepticism. You know why? Because God said, Y'all were wrong. Y'all were wrong. Now, does that mean everything that they ever said was wrong? No. But I'll tell you what it does tell me. They weren't a prophet, and they certainly weren't inspired. And so, is Job a book of the Bible? Yes. Are there great things to learn from the book of Job? Yes. But don't go reading what Job's friends said and thinking those teach us doctrine. And I've seen that happen. We've got to be very careful in understanding who said it matters. It matters who said it. You look at other principles, let's use the analogy of the faith, and let's compare what Eliphaz says with what the Bible says in other places. So Solomon says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. What's he saying? God doesn't work that way. He, he's not constantly punishing people because of their iniquity, and that's why iniquity and people that are committing iniquity keep, keep, keep on uh, committing iniquity, because there's no consequences right now, right now. So that's not how God works. Another verse says this, there's a vanity which occurs on the earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Let's think about Eliphaz's statement. You ever seen an innocent man perish? What's Solomon say? Sometimes innocent men perish. That's what he said. I know this guy was inspired by God, right? Yes. And so, so you, again, it's not just enough to say who said it, but also what do other scriptures say about it? What other scriptures say? So again, utilize that to your advantage. Is everything in the Bible literal? So on the surface, it would, it would be tempting to say yes. Uh, but understand what's meant by that. Is everything meant to be taken at face value? That is literally interpreted. And this is where we're going to get into some various literary devices. Because... Uh, the Bible uses literary devices over and over and over, especially in the Old Testament, but sometimes in the New Testament, like we mentioned earlier with the book of Revelation. One of the things that comes up a lot today is, is Genesis history or is it an allegory? 
And, and they don't necessarily question everything about Genesis. What they primarily question is Genesis chapter 1. Now, why would anybody question Genesis chapter 1? Because, Ian, we're educated, we're enlightened, we've done all this research, and we now know what the dates of the rocks are, and we, we know how old they are because we've, we've, married, we've, uh, we've measured the uh, radiometric isotopes in these rocks, and we know exactly how old they are. No, you don't. No, you don't. All those things are made on assumptions, and if you want to talk about that later, we'll talk about it. I don't want to talk about it now because it would be a very long and tedious discussion. But I'm telling you, what you shouldn't do with the Bible is go, well, let's see what the world is saying, and then let's decide what God's Word means based upon what the world is saying. Because I'll tell you what God does. He takes the wise in their craftiness. That's what He does. He makes the wisdom of the world foolishness. And it's foolishness for people to look at Genesis and say, well, it's not history, it's just all an allegory. And so Christians have tried to adapt, adopt this idea, and they've said, well, you know, we believe that evolution and all the millions and billions of years happened. We just believe that the first seven days of Genesis are actually not days, they're ages, ages of time. And that sounds really good. Tell you, consider that the plants were created on day three, and the sun is created on day four. And so how did the plants live for billions of years without the sun? Oh, well, I didn't think about that. Don't buy into this garbage. God created the world in six days, and he rested the seventh. That's what happened. Six literal days. Sun up, sun down. That's what happened. So how do you know Genesis is history? Because that's how Jesus spoke about Genesis. That's why. He didn't say, y'all remember the story of Noah? No, he talked about Noah as being a real person who went through a real literal flood, and real people rejected the will of God, and the real world was destroyed. Not as a story, but as a historical event. That's how Jesus treated it. And we could go on and on about Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and all the things that Jesus talked about as being a historical, factual event. Genesis is history. So let's talk about literary devices. Okay, so first we're going to start out by talking about prophecy and prophetic symbols. And again, these are in your notes so for you to refer back to later. Uh, they're probably in a different order, so I apologize for that. Uh, they're probably in a different order than what we're going to look at today. But again, those are mainly for you to go back and reference later. So let's talk about prophetic symbols. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6. This was a principle that was laid out, so it wasn't a shock to people when these type of symbols and signs came about because God explained that he was going to do that. And so Numbers 12, 6 and 8, he said, Hear now my words, if there be a prophet among you, the, I the Lord will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches, and the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So God's logic is, is to say something with, with emphasis to say, listen, I've dealt with Moses different than I've dealt with every other prophet. And so I don't, why, why are you not afraid to speak against him? Isn't it obvious that I've set him apart from everybody else? But notice how he set him apart. So God said, I will speak to prophets in visions, in dreams, and in dark speeches. What does that mean? Well, let's contrast it with how he spoke to Moses. He spoke to Moses how? Mouth to mouth and apparently. So what's that tell us about dark speeches? They're not apparent. They're not clear. 
They're, they're dark. What, what does dark mean? What happens if we turn off all the lights in here? We don't see everything as clearly. That's the point of dark speeches, things that aren't as clear, things that aren't so easy to see. And so God spoke that way to who? To the prophets. And how did he speak to them? Did he call them up on the mountain and speak face to face like he did to Moses? And face to face again is, is also a usage of literary device. He didn't, he didn't look, Moses didn't see the face of God. But he's making a point that I spoke directly to Moses and he spoke directly to me. But that's not how I speak to the prophets. So you go through the prophecies and what do you see? You see people speaking in visions and dreams. And, and you start seeing them being given these obscure messages that need interpreted, not by the prophet, but by God himself. Here's one example of that. Genesis 41, 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. You know what, jo what Joseph didn't say? Pharaoh, I'll tell you what, buddy. I am smart and I will tell you what your dream means. No, this wasn't Joseph. Joseph was not the interpreter of dreams. He wasn't the revealer of truth. He said, God has shown you. God's shown you that. Because how did God speak to Pharaoh? He told him there was going to be these skinny cows that were going to eat these fat cows. I tell you, if I had a dream like that, I'd be bewildered. Think, what in the world am I dreaming about? And what does this mean? And then he had these skinny ears of corn, which are probably more like heads of grain that ate these fat heads of grain. Well, again, is everything in the Bible literal? Do you really believe that there were, you know, cannibalistic heads of grain? That's ridiculous. And, and Pharaoh didn't believe that when he had the dream. He said, this means something. And he called everybody to tell him what it means, and they couldn't. And Joseph said, well, God can. You know why? Because God gave him the dream. Of course he knows what it means. He's the one that delivered it. And so I want to say this, when you go to read prophecy in Scripture, always use the analogy of faith. Look in other places and see, has God told us what this means already? You go study Revelation. Don't do that without studying Daniel and Ezekiel. You know why? Because almost everything in Revelation was already talked about in Daniel and Ezekiel. And not only was it talked about in Daniel and Ezekiel, it was explained in Daniel and Ezekiel. And so you can't just look at the symbols and go, well, I bet that's what this means. Friends, that's foolish. That is foolish. We have to let the Bible interpret itself. Daniel chapter 2, verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? You know what Daniel said? Yes, sir. No, he didn't. No, he did not. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And I I'm, know I'm, I'm, I'm pushing this really hard, but I'm doing it for a reason, and I'll tell you why. We are not prophets, and we are not God. We're not God. These men did not rely on their own wisdom and understanding in order to interpret these dreams, and we shouldn't either. If, if God didn't tell us what something symbolizes in Scripture, don't try to make assumptions of what it symbolizes. It's not helpful. It's not helpful at all to just say, well, you know, it could mean this, it could mean, well, I think this is what it means. No. Let's let the Bible interpret itself. That's what these men did, and they were prophets. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives in, by the river uh, Kibar, 
that the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. And if you read Ezekiel, you go, oh man, this is crazy. <laughs> you know, there's been so many ideas about what happens in Ezekiel 1. Flying saucers. Flying saucers. Helicopters with lights on the road. All kinds of stuff. You know what? If you just read a little further, he said, those were angels. I'm, again, what was it meant to represent? That's the most important part. All these signs and symbols were not given because they were obscure. They were given in obscurity to represent something that was going to happen. Uh, there's also some other examples in your handout, which we're not going to go into great detail about. Uh, prophecies regarding the end of an era or the death of a nation, if you will. The end of a nation. Very similar language. Same language that's given to us in Acts chapter 2 about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving her light or the moon turning into blood or things like that. Very very, very similar language, but again, not to be taken literally, and that's the way prophetic symbols works. And so we should expect to see that when we're reading prophecy. Um, when you read the Law of Moses, it's not given that way. Mo Moses doesn't give a bunch of obscure things that God delivered to him. It's very to the point. It's very apparent. It's, it's very much, thus says the Lord. Revelation chapter 1, again, if you notice, the same phrase is used, uh, similar phrase is used when he said, he sent and signified it. By his angel to his servant John. Well, that's a prerequisite to understanding the book. You, you get that in your mind first and go, okay, everything I'm about to read is in symbolic language. Sign form. Prof prophetic language. Prophecy. So what should you expect? Dark speeches. Things that aren't so apparent. And again, like the creatures I described earlier. Not very apparent. You know, vials, the, the vials being opened, the seals being removed, all these different things, the hills and, and the beast with the, with the seven heads and, and the horns and all that. You read about that, you go, man, that's really frightening. Well, maybe it is frightening, but the truth is it all represents something. And again, don't make assumptions about that because the book of Daniel tells you what it represents if you go back and read that. Okay, moving on from prophetic symbols. Another literary device that is used very commonly is parables. And most of the parables that we see are in the teachings of Jesus in the uh, three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, there are parables in other places in Scripture in the Old Testament, um, but they're not the same, to the same nature that the parables that we see of Jesus. And, and there, so I want to talk about why Jesus spoke in parables. And Matthew chapter 13, verse 10 through 13, we're going to take a look at this and again do another exercise in hermeneutics. And then after this, we're going to take a short break. Matthew chapter 13, 10 through 13. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak in parables? So, okay, we're going to get our answer, right? Jesus, why do you speak in parables? He answered and said to them, because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, that's the audience out here, not here, but Jesus' audience, <laughs> to them it has not been given. Now, right, if we stop right there, what you'll what you probably get out of this is, oh, well, Jesus is giving these things in obscure ways so that those people won't understand his message. But if we read further, we're going to find out that's not exactly his point. For whosoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, 
nor do they understand. So Jesus said, this is why I speak to them in parables. So verse 12, that clears everything up. And maybe some of you are going, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. So let's break it down. What, what's he talking about? Okay, so he says, whosoever has, to him more will be given. So there's two words there, has and given. Well, if we back up a little bit, Jesus said this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I think that's the has part. Whoever has, ears to hear. What is ears to hear? Is he saying, hey, if you got ears on your head? No. Again, this isn't literal. What's this mean, ears to hear? Do you have a hunger and a desire for truth and spiritual things? That's, that's what I believe he's saying. And so, whoever has a desire to hear spiritual things, to him more will be given. Given what? He said, unto you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. That word know means to perceive something, to understand, to comprehend. So here's what I believe Jesus is saying. Whoever has a desire to hear the truth and a desire and a hunger for spiritual things, he's going to be given understanding. But someone who doesn't have that desire, even the understanding that they do possess is going to be taken away from them. You know why? Because they're going to leave confused. And it's not about, that's why I speak in parables, because I want to confuse these people. No, it's separating the wheat from the chaff. Because if they've got a desire, they're going to ponder it. They're going to think about it. They're going to hunger after it. And they're going to know and understand the truth. And so what does he continue saying? These people have fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Their ears are dull. Their eyes they've closed. And their heart is hard. This wasn't God trying to cause some obscurity so people couldn't understand. He's saying the reason they don't understand because their heart is hard. So their eyes are closed and their ears are dull of hearing. And it's all about desire. Well, that's one reason Jesus spoke in parables. The other reason that Jesus spoke in parables is because he spoke about things that we understand to teach us about a concept that maybe we don't. So he took something that was physical as an analogy for something that we might say is spiritual in nature. For instance, uh, as Jesus would talk about things of everyday life, do you think that people didn't understand the everyday life application? So like, for instance, he says the kingdom of heaven is like uh, leaven, which a woman put in measures of meal until the hole was full. And he wouldn't teach them about bread. They ate bread every day. Every day they ate bread. They watched people make bread. He's not teaching them anything about bread. He's telling them about something they already understand to make them think about the kingdom. Sorry about that. To make them think about the kingdom. But it wasn't about bread. It's a simile is what it is. It's, it's a placing beside. It's, it's I'm placing this beside this so you'll understand this better because you already understand this. And so that's why I said that. He might say something like this. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a mustard seed, which is indeed the least of all the seeds. But what happens? That tiny little seed, it grows into something that the birds can come and they can live in. Was he talking about mustard seeds and trees? Is that his point? No, his point is about something greater, about the growth of the kingdom. And we look back and we go, well, that's obvious to us. But it wasn't obvious to them. You know why? Because it wasn't given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God because they didn't have the right heart for it and they weren't in Jesus' close quarters of disciples and following him. So they weren't going to understand that. But you know what Jesus did? Often he took the disciples aside and he explained to them the mysteries of the kingdom. And the ones they didn't understand, he explained to them later through the Holy Spirit, and they did understand. They they didn't understand a lot of those things. You ever thought about that? They didn't even know what the kingdom was. 
I mean, we're in Acts chapter 1, and they're going, well, thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> they still didn't get it. And he said, that's not for you to know. Well, I thought it was for them to know. No, it wasn't, it wasn't for them to know everything. And he said, it's not for you to know the times of the season which the Father has put in his own power, but you'll receive the Holy Spirit hereafter. What's he telling them? Just wait. <laughs> the kingdom's coming, and it's coming when I send the Spirit. And you're going to know later. But right now, that's, that's not for you to know. They didn't understand everything either when they were on the earth. One of the things we also see is similes. And again, if we're, if we're asking the question about literal versus figurative, this is a very important principle as well. So Jesus says, I, he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that he looked like he was light that shot down from the sky, this big electrical static bolt that shot down to the earth, and that's what it looked like? I don't know. <laughs> Again, it's a simile, like it's, it's describing something. It's like, you know, we say, oh, it was kind of like this. Well, well, Jesus knows what he means, but, but maybe we don't necessarily understand all the implications of that. I, I think what he means is it happened quickly. I saw it. I was there, and I saw it. So, so don't get hung up on the simile and start going, yeah, when Satan was cast out of heaven, man, he was, he was the color blue and he came down kind of jagged edged and, and it was electric and the, the whole sky flashed. And don't, don't read into the similes, okay? Again, it's, it's meant to be a representation of something. All right, we're going to take a quick break and I'm going to open up the floor for some questions. Uh, again, I want to remind everybody, let's do this in an assembly manner. Uh, let's do this in an orderly fashion, one at a time. Uh, don't yell across the room again. I, I will be the bad guy if you do that. Uh, but we'll ask questions one at a time for a few minutes. All right, if you'll uh, please take a seat, we're going to start our last session of the day and we'll finish up. <clears throat> okay, so we're, we're going to go through a few more literary devices and then we're going to close up with just a few thoughts I want to leave you with. One of the other things that we see a lot in Scripture is the usage of metaphors. And, and you know, what I learned in school was, was, I think you see this hold true, is the difference between a simile and a metaphor is a, a simile usually, usually uses the words like or as, uh, which is what you see in the parables a lot. They're basically a long simile. Um, and then you've got metaphors which don't necessarily use like or as. It's just said in a figurative way. And so we see this with Jesus, and I want to use the idea of a cup uh, to illustrate that today as we look at the idea of a cup. In Mark chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus said unto them, You know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now what I want to do is I want to think about this literally. Let's, let's say that Jesus is asking them literally this question. So what is he asking them? Guys, can you literally drink out of a cup? Like I do. Well, yeah. I mean, you'll die if you can't, right? I mean, if you take that literally, that, that's not really a, that seems like a silly question. 
When you understand it's a figurative cup that he's referring to, a figurative baptism that he's going to be baptized with, and you understand the questions that prompted him to ask them these questions of, hey, grant us that one of us can sit on your right hand and the other on the left hand, your left, my left. Then he's saying this, I, I can't do that. I can't grant you that. And I, I think his explanation is very simple here. I'm going to be exalted and given power and sit on a throne because of what I'm going to do. Can you do that? Can you bear the sins of all mankind? Can you take all of man's sins on the cross and die for the redemption of a lost race? No, you can't. That's his question. This is about a cup of death. It's about his responsibility. It's about what he has to drink. It's the same idea as taking up your cross, which obviously is literal for Jesus, but figurative for us. And so this idea that everything has to be literal, people use that to validate their beliefs until they can't, until they have to abandon it. And I would say, let's never get in a position where we're trying to validate our beliefs. Let's just view scripture with integrity and honesty and view it with the right questions. Is it literal or is it figurative? Obviously, this is figurative, right? Well, let's look at other usages of the word cup. Matthew 23, 23, you serpents, you generation of vipers. I've got getting ahead of myself. Uh, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Did Jesus think that these people were really snakes? No, not really snakes. I mean, they were people, right? So why does he call them serpents and vipers did you think jesus do you think they thought jesus was confused and he thought they were snakes no they understood exactly what he meant because you know what they associate vipers and snakes with the devil what was he telling them you're wicked he didn't really think they were snakes he was using a metaphor or uh, an analogy we might call it a figure of speech isaiah chapter 11 verses 11 through 12 and it shall come to pass in that day, and, and we are going to come back to the cup in a minute. I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. And it came to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand against the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, and from Egypt, and from Pathros, and from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations. Now listen. And shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, from these verses has come about a very aggressive uh, pushing of the flat earth theory. And I don't want to get into the flat earth theory. I just want to tell you, that's not what he means here. That's not what he means here. He's not saying there are four corners of the earth that it's this, you know, even the flat earth theory thinks it's a disc, so there's not four corners. But my point is this, he's not literally saying, I believe that there's four corners on the earth. That's not his point. Jesus uses similar language in Matthew 24 when he says this, He shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Do you really think that there were people all the way on one side of heaven to the other? No, he's, he's using a figurative uh, metaphor here. The four winds. So what's that mean? From every direction. The four winds, north, south, east, west, from the four winds, from every direction, from all places. He's going to go to the expanses of the earth and gather together the elect. So again, we, if you take these things literally, it's going to cause more confusion than clarity. So don't miss the forest for the trees, if you will. Okay, so let's get back to the cup. We saw Jesus use a figurative usage of the cup. <clears throat> so let's look at Luke chapter 22 now and see if that's how he uses it in this verse. Because this is a very important verse 
And, and I'll tell you, there's division within the church over the idea of the cup. And I'm, I'm certain some of you are aware of that, that there, there's a doctrine uh, where there's a debate between whether or not we have to all take out of one container or whether we can take out of multiple containers. And I just want to ask a simple question, because the argument that I've always heard is, well, the cup is literal. It's literal. Okay, Luke twenty-two seventeen. He took the cup. What's a cup? We know what a cup is, literally, right? We all have that understanding. And he gave thanks, and he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. So what can we gather from this verse about the cup? It can be what? Divided. Because that's what Jesus said. Take this. This what? This cup. And do what? Divide it amongst yourselves. So how would you do that? How would you accomplish that? Well, I guess we could break it in pieces. Is that what Jesus was telling them to do? Here, take this cup and, and keep, keep a souvenir. Y'all break this in a, into several pieces and keep it. Was that what he was saying? Or was he saying, take the contents of the cup and share it with one another? And, 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 and we don't even think about what was going on there. They're at the Passover feast. You know what they didn't do at the Passover feast? Pass around one cup to all drink it up. They all had their individual drinking uh, containers, if you will. So Jesus hands them a cup and says, here, take this and divide this amongst yourself. What do you think they did? Sit there and look at each other? Or take the cup and divide it amongst themselves? They apportioned it among themselves. It's a figurative usage of the cup. And so you can't divide a, a literal vessel. In, and obviously that's not what Jesus' point was. What was he talking about? The cup, the contents of the cup. Okay, let's talk about Proverbs. And I, this may be somewhat controversial. Uh, but I'm not always uh, against bringing up controversy. Uh, the Proverbs are not meant to be absolute statements. And what I mean, I'm not saying they're not true, I'm saying they're not absolute statements. In other words, the Proverbs are not meant to be a mathematical equation. They're cause and effect statements for the most part, the book of Proverbs is. But the cause plus the effect, uh, the variable in between is not always the same. And the outcome's not always the same. And let me give you a couple examples. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. So let's say that someone raises a child, and that child decides to go apostate. They decide to rebel against God, and they leave God. And so what do we do? We say, well, obviously the parents are at fault here. They didn't raise that child right. That's the reason they've done that. That may certainly be true. But is it always true? Is it always true? And then you look at a household where maybe somebody's got twins, and they grow up in the same house, and one of the twins ends up serving God, and one of the twins ends up going apostate. You just go, oh, what happened there? Obviously, it's a parent's fault, right? No, that's not the point of the proverb. The point of the proverb is this. If you want a child to go a certain way, what do you do? You've got to train them. You've got to train your child. That's the point of the proverb. So sometimes we get hung up on the absolutes of the outcome. Here's another example. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You ever spoken to somebody softly and they were still mad at you? Still come at you? That happens. Again, it's not meant to be a mathematical, mathematical equation. And so, what's he saying here? He's telling us what's better, what's wise, how we should act. So if you want to go into a situation that's somewhat volatile and someone's really angry, what's the best thing to do? Yell at them or speak softly? That's the point of the proverb. They are wise sayings. And I want to say this too. They weren't done away with the law of Moses. 
You know why? Because they're not part of the law of Moses. They were written during the time that Moses' law was an authority, but these are not statements of law. They're wise sayings. And I think sometimes we're, we, we confuse language by saying the Old Testament was done away with. Was it? No, Moses' law was done away with. The Old Testament wasn't done away with. And I want to give you an example of that. When was Daniel fulfilled? Before or after the death of Christ? Well, obviously, it's after the death of Christ, right? So was Daniel nailed to the cross? No, it's a book of prophecy. It's not a book of law. Were the Proverbs nailed to the cross? Were the books of history nailed to the cross? No. Again, it's a figurative statement about how the authority of Moses was nailed to the cross, not Genesis to Malachi. And so we've got to be careful with our language by saying, well, the Old Testament was, was done away with. No, some of it is prophetic. Some of it is history. Some of it's law, and that law no longer has an authority. And in the case of the Proverbs, these are timeless principles. And you want to learn about things in life. You want, you want a good uh, place to start exercising meditation. Proverbs is your place. Go read uh, a few statements out of Proverbs every morning, several times, and then meditate on it all day, and then walk around and observe how it works in life. I'll tell you, you, you want to gain wisdom, that's a good way to do it. It's a good way to do it. These are timeless principles about relationships and things about money and things about emotions and, and things about what we do and the, and the consequences of those actions. So again, these things are wise sayings, not absolute truths. Hyperbole is another thing that's used, and, and the best way for me, I guess, to explain hyperbole, it's when you say, like, uh, let's say, like, you say to your kid, do I have to tell you this 10,000 times? Which you probably shouldn't use that tone with your kid anyway, but you get the point. Do I have to tell you to clean your room 10,000 times? And, and did you literally count, like, this is time number 10,000? No, you're, you're using something extreme to get a point across. Well, the Bible does that too, okay? So look at Joshua eleven four. They went out, they and all their hosts with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude with horses and chariots, very many. You ever tried to count the sand on the seashore? You ever tried to count the sand in a jar? Do you think he, there was literally as many people as there was sand on the seashore? No, it's, it's hyperbole. It's an explanation. It's, it's a way of describing what happened that day and how many people were there. So as the sand on the sea, it's not meant to be taken literally. So I, I'm not saying that this stuff is prevalent in Scripture. I'm just saying it exists and you've got to be aware of it. Because otherwise you'll come up with conclusions that, that are really not meant to be interpreted that way. Tops and shadows, and I m mentioned this a little bit ago that we see the image and so it's easy to see what the shadows represent because we see the image and we get that idea from places in the New Testament where it talks about types and shadows. So one of the places is in Hebrews 10 which again I want to remind you was written to Jewish Christians. Written to Jewish Christians to tell them what? The superiority of Jesus over Moses. That they needed to leave Moses, they needed to move on toward Christ and leave Moses behind meaning leaving all of their status and all of the uh, pride that they had as Jews behind and moved toward Jesus. And he's trying to impress upon them that those things back there are not what's important. In fact, he says the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. 
What's he saying? He's saying, don't go back to that, because that's inferior. Don't go back to that. That was just a shadow. That was just given to teach us about our need for Jesus, the true Redeemer, who was able to make the comers there unto perfect, who was able to redeem us from sin and cleanse us and atone for us. And so again, it, the shadow teaches you something about the image, but you got to be careful with shadows. Because if you're just looking at the shadow, things are not so obvious. You know, if, 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 if I was to shine a flashlight up on the wall and do something like this, so, some little bitty kid might believe, oh, there's a rabbit. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a hand. I mean, you can make a shadow look like a lot of things, but you can't tell everything about the image from the shadow. But you can learn a lot about the shadow from the image. And so we, we have hindsight. We can look back and we see these things. You know, I, I'm sure nobody before Jesus came, looked at the story of Joseph and thought, man, his life is prophetic of Jesus. But then you actually look at his life, you go, well, you know, here's the, God tells him he's going to be exalted above his 11 brothers, which he's part of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then those brothers are going to reject him and, and try to get him killed. And all of a sudden he's going to be exalted. And they're all going to fear for their life and he's going to express forgiveness to them. And nobody saw that. You know why? Because they hadn't seen the image. They'd just seen the shadow. And they didn't know what the shadow was. So shadows are a really good way of learning about God's purpose being layered throughout the Old Testament and seeing how all these stories that were being told to us in the Old Testament, it wasn't because that was the only people God was dealing with. It was because all of those people that he's writing to us about are leading us to the Redeemer. That's what it is. It's the history of the Redeemer. That's why he's telling us about specific characters of the Bible. They're not random characters. They're people that had an intricate part to play in humanity leading up to the time that Jesus would be born into the world. And so understand, the entire Old Testament in some ways is a shadow of Jesus because it's all about Jesus. It doesn't make sense without Jesus. Poetry. I know this is silly, it's elementary. I'm just using this because it's basic and this is our, often the way we recognize something poetic is by the rhyme scheme or the cadence of words. And so this is you know, somewhat of a, of a simple way of illustrating that. Poetry in those olden times was not that way. It wasn't necessarily about phonetic rhyming or, or having a word count or something like that. It was just their way of speaking. And so especially going back to the book of Job, even skeptics of the Bible, literary scholars have agreed that they believe Job is one of the most, if not the most, beautiful works of poetry that exist in the world. And I find that pretty interesting. And you look through the way these guys spoke to each other, and wrong as they were at times, they spoke in such a beautiful, poetic way. And so we have Job here, again, and I know I'm harping on this, but again, the Bible's not all literal. And so listen to what Job says. Oh, that my grief were fully weighed and my calamity laid, on it, uh, laid with it on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. Did Job literally believe that if you took his grief and his trouble and you laid it on one side of the scale and laid all the sands of all the sea and all the world on the other side of the scale that it would literally tip the scale no but i'll tell you what this is it's a beautiful expression of pain and some of you felt that haven't you you felt like that and you can identify with that the way that you express that and it's beautiful it's tragic but it's beautiful 
And so there's a lot of poetry in the book of Job as he describes what's going on. One of the things he says in, in chapter 6 is this, For the arrows of the Almighty are within me, my, ter- my spirit drinks in their poison, the tares of God are arrayed against me. One of the ways that we recognize poetry in the Bible is through repetition. And what that means is they would say the exact same thing multiple times, but each time they said it, they said it differently, even though it means the same thing. Or in this case, we have what's called a progressive parallelism. And what that means is, as he says the same thing, it progresses and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And so notice what he says. The arrows of the Almighty are within me. Now, he didn't literally think God had pulled back a bow and shot him with an arrow. But again, he's describing what's going on. He thought God was responsible for his pain. And he was wrong about that, but this is how he says that. And then he says, my spirit drinks in their poison. So what's he saying? Okay, I've been shot with an arrow by God. And that's the weakest part of this parallelism. And then the second part is this. Oh, it's not just any arrow, it's a poison arrow. Oh, it's not just a poison arrow. It's like God's archers are just lined up firing one after another. And I can't get relief. It's poetry is what it is. And that's, that's why literary scholars have read Job and they said, this is beautiful poetry. Well, again, don't read it as everything being literal. Read it understanding a lot of this is poetic language. So the question is, when is it literal? So we talked about all these literary devices. So when is it literal? And I would say there's two things. One, think about the analogy of faith. We're going to talk about that. But the scriptures are always literal unless the context demands otherwise. That's, a, that's usually the most important thing. Again, context, context, context. So don't just go in there and say, well, I don't like that. I think that's figurative. <laughs> it's not that simple. Context is king. Other, other precepts demand otherwise. Okay? And, and what I mean by that is, okay, what do we know about the amount of population that's been on the earth? Well, we know it's never been as much as the sand of the sea, right? So that's, that's a principle we already know that we can go, well, he doesn't literally mean that. <laughs> he doesn't literally mean that, okay? So, there, so you may have other things to compare it to uh, that will help you know whether or not something should be literal or is literal. All right, so I want to close today before we open the floor up for questions again with some reasons why we've gone through all this. And I also recognize we've, we've threw out a lot of information today. And if you're like me, you probably got bits and pieces of it, and there's probably things you wish you remembered that you didn't or things that, that, that you're going to be thinking about later. That's why the handout's there. And, it's, and I hope that it's, it's explanatory in a sufficient way where you can go back and read through it, and it'll remind you of everything we talked about. If it's not, uh, get my contact number, call me if you want to talk or have questions or just talk about it and discuss it. I'd be glad to do that with you. But there's a reason why we went through all this because as it pertains to teaching, guys, when we use the word uh, in its integrity and we rightly divide it and we present that with the right intention and we give it to people in the right way that God's designed it, they're going to be blessed by it. They're going to be blessed by it. But you know what? The opposite is true. The opposite's true. And, and sometimes, I'm telling you, it's hard to sit through a sermon. It can be very hard to sit through a sermon. If somebody gets up and they say, well, I didn't prepare very much today. I'm going, great. <laughs> you know, that's just what I'm thinking. Well, this is going to be fantastic. You know, nobody thinks that. And, and, and you really don't have to tell people that. Because if you get up and you start mishandling the word 
and it's obvious you hadn't really studied the scriptures that you're reading. Everybody knows that, and it's not a blessing. It's not a blessing. It's an endurance test, and I want to remind you, we're not slot fillers. God's called us to be edifiers, edifiers, and that starts here with study. It doesn't start with, well, I'm a good orator. I know I went to speech class. I know all the different hand motions and presentation skills. My PowerPoint looks wonderful, and I'm not saying mine does. I'm just saying a lot of times that's what people focus on is the presentation aspect and the words they use. None of that matters if the content's bad. And so it starts here, and it doesn't just, it's not just about blessing, being a blessing, but there's something else that Paul identifies here in 1 Thessalonians 2 I want us to notice. He says, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, what you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Now listen, which also effectively works in you who believe. What is God's word designed to do? Educate us? Well, yes, in some ways, but that's not the goal. The goal is that it educates us in such a way that it works in us. It works in us. And when we study God's Word with the right hermeneutic, with the right attitude, with all the right elements, I'll tell you what it does. It motivates you to work in His kingdom. If you find somebody that's working in the kingdom, I guarantee you, they're in the Word. They're in the Word. They're in the Word. And you find people that aren't working in the kingdom, a lot of times, they're not in the Word. Because it's hard to read God's Word every day and not be motivated to work for the Lord, to behave the right way, to seek after holiness in your life, to speak softly and exhibit forgiveness and meekness and all the things that we read about in the New Testament. If you're drinking in God's Word every day, that's the kind of output you're going to have. So this isn't just about teaching. This is about life. This is about all of us. You want to grow in your spirituality? You want to grow closer to God? Well, you're not going to do that without studying God's Word. That's just the reality of it. So I hope you'll take the time to expand your familiarity with the Word of God, that you'll take more time to focus on God's Word all throughout this year and the years to come and ensure that God's Word is working in you in the effective way. See, this is what God's Word is designed to do. Every one of us have a fleshly nature, a nature that is according to carnality. And what that essentially means is man by nature in his flesh gravitates away from God and towards self and sin. You been there? Me too. And, and what is the purpose of God's Word? Well, if you look at the teaching that Paul gives in Romans 12 too, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Why does he say don't be conformed to this world? Because it's so easy. It is so easy to be conformed to this world. Look, look how people's faith is being changed. Look, look what happens when, when, when children get exposed to, to all these political ideas. Look at how it changes their view of God. It's really easy to get conformed to the world. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, okay? Be transformed. By what? By the renewing of your mind. Well, how does that work? It's very obvious, isn't it? And I'm going to tell you, if you don't start here, nothing happens out here. And so this is not a battle against behavior. This is a battle against the heart, the mind. That's what we're fighting against, our own heart and mind. And I tell you, you're not going to overcome your heart and mind, but God can. And, you're, and he's not going to do it separate and apart from his word. But by meditating on God's word every day, 
our spirit is renewed, our mind is renewed, our heart is renewed, and we're transformed into exactly what God wants us to be. That is the perfect, acceptable will of God. And that's what we will look for in our life from that point on. Not asking, what do I want to do? What feels good to me? But what does God want from me? And that becomes so much easier when we're constantly in His Word. And it changes our nature. That's what it does. It changes our nature. We're not just the same old man in new clothes. We're a different man. A different man. A different person. We don't think the same way. We don't desire the same things. And we ask, what does God want from me? So I want to encourage you again, really, really get involved in study. And if there's some of this that you didn't understand, don't let that hinder you from diving into God's Word. Don't, and again, this is about growth. We're going to mature as we go along. We're going to learn more. But don't, don't say, well, I'm going to wait till I'm mature, and then I'll start really studying God's Word. That's not how it works. It just doesn't work that way. I thank you for your attention today. Uh, I know these sessions have been long. I know there's been a lot of information today, and I hope that's been useful to you in some way. I'm going to open up the floor one more time for questions. Uh, so if you have questions about any of the presentations at this time, uh, we'll allow that at this time. In Revelation? Okay, so, so some have looked at the 144,000 in Revelation, and they've looked at that in a way that, that there's literally only going to be 144,000, uh, which is, you know, quite frightening when you think about that in, in its literal usage. However, that was all related to thousands and, and the uh, 12 tribes of Israel. I think it was a compounding of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, and the thousand, which thousand means completion. And it's, it's not meant to be, and, and it's not meant to be a finite number of how many people will be redeemed or saved, but rather it's in a prophetic language that is using familiar numbers to help impress upon them who will be there. It's not about how many, but who will be there in its complete state. That's, that's what I take that to mean. Y'all going to let me off easy. For, for instance? Okay, foot washing. Good question. Um, I would say that you have to read other precepts around it. Uh, for instance, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, um, he mentions to them while he's doing that, you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but you will hereafter. Well, they all understood he was washing their feet. So obviously that wasn't the lesson because nobody's going to look and go, you know, we don't know he's, that he's washing feet. They all got that. What they didn't understand is why he was washing their feet. And so I think you have to look at the context and look at what is he trying to teach. And so he goes on to explain that by saying, you know, I've, I've washed your feet, and you call me master and Lord. And if I'm your master and Lord, wash your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. Well, I don't take that to mean literally foot washing. I think that was cultural. You know, I've got shoes, and I've got socks, and my wife is really good to me because i got fresh socks every day, and I just I don't need my feet washed. But that was something that they did in those days that was humiliating. People that washed your feet were your servants. And it was, it was kind of a... 
typical hospitality type thing. You came in, you sat down, what do they do? Well, they wash your feet because you wear sandals and you walk everywhere and don't want to get graphic, but there weren't toilets and bathrooms. And so it's kind of a gross thing to do. And here Jesus is doing that. And I, I think that's, in a, in a passage like that, that's, that's how you know the lesson's not foot washing. He's not trying to set a pattern for us washing each other's feet, but rather being willing to do the things that we sometimes think are beneath us. And if nothing's beneath the Lord to do, then why should we as his servants think anything is beneath us? That's, I think a lot, a lot of passages like that, there's more than meets the eye. And, and that's why I say meditation is key in study. Because if you read, if you, you know, Jesus made a statement at one time, don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And, and I don't think he's saying you can't judge a book by its cover, even though that's somewhat related. But what he is saying is this, don't, don't just put in a minimal amount of effort to make a judgment. You need, you need to look further in that and consider all of the aspects of that before you make a decision about something. I would say so, yes. I mean, if, if you're trying to study, and, and again, I realize there's a lot of information that was given today. But the more that you exercise that, because I'll, I'll be honest with you, when I sit down to study, I don't get out this 15-page document and read through it so I can study. I mean, that would be somewhat counterproductive. I don't have that kind of time. But, but throughout the years, by exercising those things, I don't have to think, okay, we need to be looking for metaphors and similes and things like that. It's, you just recognize them because your senses have become exercised. So it, I would say now, yes, but later as you get more used to seeing those things, that, that it becomes a lot less necessary to, to try to really go through like a list, a mental list in your mind of everything the Bible contains because you just automatically know that. Does that answer your question? Right, anyone else? Well, once again, I, I want to say I, I appreciate everybody being here. Uh, I know it's been somewhat of a long day. It's been a long day for me, too. Uh, my, voice, my voice is starting to feel scratchy, so I'm glad we're coming toward the end. Uh, but I appreciate your attention today, all the questions that have been asked. I hope that you'll take this guide home, that you'll look at it, use it, uh, if there's things that you find errors in it, please contact me. Again, I, uh, this is somewhat out of my box to create something like this, a printout. So um, I, I edited it, or I, I basically reviewed it several times, but I've, I've gone back and looked at stuff and saw mistakes. So please let me know if you see something like that in the guide. Um, I don't guess I have anything else, man. We want to thank Ian for all of his work to prepare this material and for his time to committed to be here. Thank you for your time coming, being committed to learning more about God's Word. What I'm walking with today more than away with today more than anything is just I need to recommit to more study. I think all of us can take more time and more effort and and. Uh, meditation, reading, meditation, study, and when we do that, we're going to be benefited. 
the idea of teaching someone else starts with this foundation. We can't teach people something that we don't know. And it's very important that, that we have our foundation correct as the people of God so that we can live lives of example and then we can, we can teach others about what's in God's Word. Let's stand together at this time and I'm going to ask Brother Jay if he would to come forward and dismiss us in, in prayer. When you fill a cup up and it starts running over, it's got to go somewhere. And when you do what he said today and study, and you're full of the Word of God, you've got to tell somebody. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you that we've been permitted to come here and be edified and built up and, and made to feel better inside about ourselves as we have learned things from your word. Help us to use these as we go out into the community. Help us to learn to tell our neighbors. Help us to learn to share our word with our families. Help us to learn to come together with brothers and sisters in Christ and be excited about something besides the ball game or the weather. Thank you for the work that Ian's done to put together this material. A lot of work has went into this, and it's things that can profit us eternally. Cleanse us of our sin, we ask in Jesus' name.